Hey, Chivers, it's Bob Phillip and John Rezik here, bringing entertainment to your lives every Thursday with new episodes of the Chive Podcast, or so we hope anyways. Not sure how it happened, but we have managed to con Sasha Baron Cohen, Edward Norton, John Cena, Sasha Gray, and superstars like Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges into stopping by our little podcast. So get in on the laughs and the good times. Download the Chive Podcast on the Podcast One app, or subscribe at iTunes or podcastone.com. And we were just on Jay Moore's podcast, so check out Jay Moore's stories while, while you're at it. It's a great time. We had so that much was, fun. That was a good time. The following program is a podcastone.com production. Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Laura Jane Grace. In Paul Verhoeven's new French-language movie, Elle, the most elaborate and daring provocation of the year, and um, at 78, this is Verhoeven's unexpected masterpiece, Isabelle Huppert plays Michelle, the head of a small but successful video game company she runs with her best friend and colleague, Anna. And we're all of the male millennials working there, creating the misogynist games Michelle helps produce, either scorn her or fear her or are infatuated with her. Michelle's loser millennial son is working at a fast food joint and has had a baby with his bitchy, unfaithful girlfriend. And obviously the baby is not his and demands that his mom pay for their new apartment, even though Michelle loathes the girlfriend. And Michelle's ex-husband is a bitter and broke failed novelist who is still attracted to Michelle, but is dating a yoga instructor half his age. A much younger man is dating Michelle's elderly mother, and the man who can barely feign interest in her keeps threatening to marry Michelle's mom, obviously after her money and not her addicted-to-plastic-surgery visage. And Michelle herself has become infatuated with her handsome new neighbor, Patrick, who is married and lives across the street from Michelle in their upscale Parisian suburb. While Michelle is also having an affair with her best friend and colleagues, yes, Anna's husband. Also added into this mix is the fact that Michelle's father, who has been in prison for a monstrously ghastly crime he committed decades ago when Michelle was a girl, is now on the brink of parole. But all of this is revealed later, after the very first scene. L opens with a rape in progress. The first image in L is of Michelle's cat coolly watching the rape taking place in Michelle's living room. And we can only hear it. 
And then we see the rape itself. A man entirely clad in black and wearing a black ski mask is thrusting on top of Michelle, with Michelle writhing beneath him and trying to fight back, but she's subdued with brutal efficiency. The scene is swift. It totally throws a viewer off guard. And before you can get your bearings, the man leaves and it's over. Michelle, stunned, cleans up the broken base and overturned furniture in a daze, takes a bath, goes to a doctor to get an STD check, and pointedly does not go to the police. Not because of shame, but because of plot reasons that become clearer later on. And she immediately resumes her life as an upper bourgeois businesswoman, a mother, a daughter, an ex-wife, a lover, and a woman who becomes fixated on that handsome husband across the road. What becomes clear as Elle unfolds is that Michelle has had to deal with a wide assortment of needy men her whole life, consoling them, offering advice, dealing with their breakdowns and frustrations and rages, as well as tending to their desires and fantasies. The crisis in her life isn't the rape. Michelle does not define herself as a survivor or as a victim of the rape. She has way too much going on to deal with the rape, whatever dealing means for Michelle. In the novel the movie is based on, she confides to someone at one point that she has had worse sex from men she actually knew. Michelle begins to think that maybe it's one of the boys who works for her, the one who hates her the most, and she hires a young hacker to go through all the computers in the office after a nasty video of Michelle as an animated princess being anally penetrated by a squid-like Cthulhu creature gets leaked online. As the movie goes on, more of Michelle's life is revealed while she begins to be taunted by that masked intruder from the very first scene. He sends texts, nasty gifts, warnings, threats, while she continues to deal with her business and her personal life. And then she is raped again by that same intruder. And this hypnotic movie turns into a deeply pleasurable and perverse thriller. And I don't want to give too much away in terms of its twists. If Elle sounds like a parody, it's not. It's deadly serious and made with an old-school elegance and classicism, even if it's the most modern polemic I've seen in a movie theater this year. It always borders on black comedy, but it's actually a throwback to a serious woman's picture, much like Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals is as well, but staged as a deliriously exciting genre movie. This isn't a movie for comrade snowflake obsessed with identity politics and demanding that only a woman should have directed this movie. The dumb way of looking at Elle is that it's only sexist and misogynist and could, of course, only come from the minds of men. Even though Huppert plays this with a chilly grace and intensity and a complete lack of sentimentality, and she refuses to be relatable or to ask for our empathy, she's not only a cool customer, she can also be an utter bitch, exasperated by the flailing men around her that she keeps propping up. Michelle is not a helpless victim, obsessing over the attack, defining herself by it. In many ways, she's like as much of a dude as her rapist. Michelle is, once you find out more about her, so much more cruel and cold than her actual rapist, who was a total weakling, that you will find yourself chuckling with amusement at the way she deals with the movie's narrative, the tricks and hurdles it has set up for her, because Huppert's Michelle has a few of her own tricks. Huppert makes Michelle the strongest, most deeply thought-out female character I've seen in a movie in years, and yet, Verhoeven had to make the movie in France. The original script was set in Boston because he couldn't find any American actresses willing to play the role, let alone get any American financing. Elle is supposed to provoke, and it's supposed to offend. And the question is, what happened to taboo art, art that challenged our preconceptions about men, women, sex? What happened to mischief in movies? What happened to the irresponsible? 
Have our movies and the way we react to our movies been colored and drowned in a kind of PC ideological identity politics kind of thinking? L, especially for American audiences, challenges our notions of what it means to be a woman and a victim. And I say American audiences because it is doing much better in Europe. It hasn't caught on here, and many people haven't even heard of it. Though if Huppert gets nominated for an Oscar, that could change things. And I've seen little or nothing about it in the identity politics bubble of social media. Could it be that the dreaded notion of identity politics are once again dictating what should be allowable and what should not be allowable in terms of expressing yourself as an artist and creating art? The reviews might have been really good for Elm, and the movie is the best narrative film I've seen this year. I would argue that Ezra Edelman's O.J. Made in America might be the best film I've seen overall in 2016. But the reviews also include an immense amount of hand-wringing over identity politics. And critics seem terrified to praise the movie, and they do elaborate cartwheels explaining themselves before they actually do, suggesting ideologies should reign over sheer aesthetics and hinting around the fact that only certain groups should be allowed to create art, as if creating art should be made by a democracy. It's not, Little Snowflakes. Art is not made by a democratic committee. Elle ultimately is a film that's too smart to brush away, and it's supposed to leave you uncomfortable with unresolved feelings. The best art does that. If victim culture is hopefully becoming a thing of the past, anointing victims to sainthood and defining themselves by a bad thing that happened to them, is a role left over from an increasingly distant era, then challenging movies like Elle will hopefully be more commonplace in our American movie culture once again, though I doubt Comrade Snowflake wants this to happen. I was thinking about Elle and how it challenges our preconceptions about what it means to be a woman, how women see themselves, and yes, through the mind of a male screenwriter, a male director, and based on a novel by a male writer, and yet dominated by an actress who defines and clarifies the movie's intention, because Laura Jane Grace is on the podcast today, and whether she likes it or not, whether she signed up for this or not, she has challenged, shockingly, I think, our or my preconceptions, and has forever redefined them about what it meant to be the hot front man in the male-centric world of not only the punk rock scene, but the music industry in general. Here is a very bare-bones thumbnail sketch. Tom Gable forms a punk band against me and then moves from Naples, Florida, where it is easier to buy cocaine than alcohol, to Gainesville, Florida in 1997 as lead guitarist and frontman of the band after he dropped out of high school. And from about 2000 to 2006, a number of Against Me EPs and records are released, their latest charting in the lower rungs of Billboard, and they soon are constantly touring, and they endure every terrible tour story you have ever heard. They also have become heroes to the national punk rock scene with their anti-authoritarian lyrics and leftist revolutionary politics, even though it all goes down easy because of how, yes, catchy the songwriting is, and it's all done by Tom Gable. And then the major labels start looming, throwing offers at the band Sire and Universal and Virgin and Sony. And even though they can sound to some like hardcore, they're actually a straight rock band, whatever rock means now in this day and age. And the band is accessible enough for this to happen. This is the moment we were in a decade ago. The song's roots might be in hardcore, but they have a pop sheen. And Gable, as frontman, is incredibly charismatic, 6'2", muscular, and handsome. It's a no-brainer to go after this talent and make them into the next Green Day or Blink-182, God forbid. Smooth out the sound a bit and sell hundreds of thousands of records. And again, this was not a pipe dream in the music industry just yet. This is when we were on the cusp before this kind of sales figure will go away forever. And then the dream occurs, which, of course, like most dreams in the music business, becomes a nightmare. 
the million-dollar deal from Sire, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, and superstar Nirvana producer Butch Vig is going to helm against me his big label debut. And that debut is ultimately called New Wave. And um, it's a great record. And it moves the band's punk aesthetic into a more anthemic rock sound, though still much more raw and edgier than Green Day. But Tom Gable, underneath all the noise, is still writing hard-edged, melodic pop songs, basically, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Billy Joe Armstrong. And Butch Vig is discovering how to pronounce the hooks. And certainly Against Me had never crafted a song up until then as huge and catchy as Thrash and Real, the second single off New Wave and complete with her first video. But the punk audience that initially loved Against Me became wrathful toward the band because of what they saw as a betrayal. The hardcore activists, or so the punks thought of Against Me, had now become major label sellouts, even though their music never sounded more powerful. And this punk protest and rejection haunts the band for years after they signed the Sire deal, with punks now actively hating the band, which is, ironically, now better than ever. Well, what happens? New Wave is supposed to be the hit. The deal is supposed to save the band. The record with Butch is supposed to, at the very least, go gold and hopefully platinum with a million sales. In fact, it has to in order to recoup the million-dollar advance the record company gave the band. They tour opening for the Foo Fighters. They sell 100,000 copies. Bruce Springsteen becomes a fan. They play every late-night talk show. Spin names it the album of the year. Um, I suppose there was a time when that mattered. And though it sells 100,000 copies, it's not enough. The record doesn't break even and is deemed a commercial failure by the record company. And then Gable plays by the rules and makes the band's most commercial record, White Crosses, also with Butch Vig. And it is the band's shot at mainstream commercial success. The songwriting is getting better than ever, and Gable's voice has more variations in it. And though it ends up being the band's highest charting record, it had actually been leaked months earlier, and it fails. Even though White Crosses has a bigger, more radio-friendly sound with Springsteenian drama and flourishes on songs like Because of the Shame and We're Breaking Up in Spanish Moss, during all of this, Tom Gable gets married, has a child, the band gets sued by a former manager, and a tour is called off. It is every band's nightmare, and the Against Me narrative is a classic rise and fall rock and roll story. And then something happens, and it becomes a rise again story. Because hovering over this entire narrative is the fact that Tom Gable was suffering from gender dysphoria and always knew he wanted to be a woman. The six foot two, hot, handsome frontman, the epitome for some of us of rock and roll masculinity, was actually a tormented addict, dressing in women's clothing in private, and dying to be true to his real self. And yet was trapped in the male-centric world of the music industry, but it can't go on. And so in 2012, Tom Gable comes out as transgender, and we get to meet Laura Jane Grace, who wrote and produced the next great Against Me record called Transgender Dysphoria Blues. And I say great record because I'm not even talking about the ideology inherent within it, a song cycle about a transgender prostitute, with prostitution being a metaphor for the music industry, but just because the songs are so good. That's why I loved it. And Laura Jane Grace becomes one of rock's best singer-songwriters, making an Against Me record that leaps so far ahead of what they'd already accomplished as a band. It is by far the band's strongest record, and it's best-reviewed and highest-charting, reaching 23 on Billboard. This is ultimately not a sentimental narrative. Band finally becomes true to itself and reaches new artistic pinnacles because of identity politics, and everyone is so fucking happy. No, this is not that narrative exactly, because there is so much pain infused into this hard-won narrative. There really isn't a super happy ending yet, but just a kind of a relief, a dragging oneself over the finish line, surviving. Laura Jane Grace has been unusually transparent about the pains of being transgender and doesn't really play the polite, smiling poster child for it either. 
She has published this month the story that I just told in that bare-bones outline and much, much more fleshed out called Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout. And as I said, it's a much more detailed account of all of this, wildly painful with chapters about her life and the rise and fall of the band and its many incarnations, the big moments and the compromises and the defeats interspersed with journal entries written in the immediate present she kept on the road, dating from the very beginning, all the fleeting highs, all the excoriating lows. And the memoir acts as yet another devastating reminder of how awful the music industry can be. It's a memoir fueled with drugs and alcohol, denial and cross-dressing, the fallouts of hormone therapy and electrolysis, the constant shame, several nervous breakdowns and numerous panic attacks. And an excellent new Against Me record came out in September called Shape Shift With Me that I have been playing nonstop because I love it. And it's also another step forward for Laura Jane Grace. The songwriting, I think, is at its peak and the voice has become more controlled and modulated and beautiful. It's about where to go next after Transgender Dysphoria Blues. It's about where Laura has landed. Now, Laura, I didn't get into Against Me until the New Wave album when I saw the video for Thrash Unreal. And I, um, we talked about whether we can go here, and you, you've allowed me to. And I developed a huge crush on Tom Gable. I bought the record and played it nonstop for several months while fantasizing about him. He will always be there in the videos I watch. He will always be there in the YouTube clips. I know that we aren't supposed to bring up, quote-unquote, the dead once we are as far along in the process as you are. But when you're famous and you've fronted this band, how realistic is it that we are going to erase half a career or a portion of a career? I mean, I want to know what your feelings are about that because I once posted something about how much I loved Transgender Dysphoria Blues and put a picture of Laura and of Tom in a kind of tribute homage thing on Twitter and Facebook. And I got shamed by one or two people who were, I guess, correct in terms of the usage of the uh, iconography of this story. And uh, I supposedly had disrespected Laura by bringing up Tom, uh, posting that picture of him. And I guess I got it wrong. But can Tom, because of your narrative, ever fully be gone? I mean, can we ever fully erase that person? I still feel the artist is there. The voice is there, even though it's now fuller and richer. But what are your feelings about this? Well, I mean... For most trans people, they have the luxury that they can, you know, ask you to, like, forget about their past. Don't bring up their dead name or whatever. But I've always known I would never have that luxury. I just always, like, I know I was in a band publicly for, like, X amount of years. And there's YouTube videos and interviews and people know me and there's records and those records will forever say Tom Gable in there. And, I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, like... You know, my I, I still don't have a legal name ch- name change. I'm a right. convicted felon. Like I'm always needing right. a passport, and it's like just a hard process to go through. Um, so like, you know, I've had to come to a place of accepting that it's just a fucking name. You know, right. like and and that it wasn't. You know, for me, it's more about I just wanted you to have the proper context of where I was coming from in the past, um, as opposed to like never never mention that past persona to me. You right. know, like that's that's not what it's about for me. Um, before we get into anything too serious, we talk about movies on this podcast a lot. And I was thinking about what are some of the better films about the music industry, rock bands, life on the road, being a musician, the rock biopic that have really affected you? And what are the ones that really stand out for you? Or what are the ones that, that don't, that maybe missed it? Is there anything off the top of your head you have like a favorite? I often think of Control. I like that movie about a sure. joy division. Yeah. Is there one that I'm, that, that hit, hit home to you? 
I'm just thinking of it more in the context of what my band all watches on like yes, the bus yes, after like shows what? and what we all identify with. Like, I mean, um, Spinal Tap, there are forever moments that resonate. Um, of course. And, you know, we all like lately have been really into Get Him to the Greek. <laughs> I know it's. I really like that movie. It's hilarious. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, uh-huh, totally. Mm. Um, so that one. And then um, Almost Famous. Um, oh, that was one we've right. watched a bunch over the past couple of years. Those are mm. movies that always resonate with us. So you mostly, I hate the term consume content, but so you mostly watch stuff on the road, on the bus or in in motel rooms. And do you watch any television? I don't tend to really watch television. Maybe when I'm home and off tour, like I'll, every once in a while, turn on my Netflix and and try to watch one of the shows that everyone's been talking about. But like, I'm way behind on any popular television show that's, that's happening. I have not seen all of stranger things. I don't know what's happening. Um, (laughs) I I, I didn't see house of cards or anything like that, you know, but I watch movies and like, but my, my opportunities to watch movies are on a plane. So it's usually what is being played on the plane or in a hotel room on demand or whatever is on the hard drive that we are all are sharing off of on the bus. Right. But but you but you're still interested. Too. Oh, I love movies. Right. Yeah, I mean that that has always been like a way for me to turn off my brain and just like zone out. And mm-hmm. and I really have always enjoyed the visual aspect of of watching storytelling. As a kid, as a child of the '90s, before you got into punk, I was thinking about some of your earliest memories about music and songs you liked. I know you were, you were originally into bands like uh, The Doors and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, and then you discovered the Sex Pistols and the Clash and. Guns N' Roses was your favorite band. You mentioned Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Green Day. But was there music you liked that might surprise us or music that we might not have thought influenced you? Because you really are, when you look at the songwriting, it's melodic. It has hooks. There's hints of a lot of desperate romanticism to the songs. Were there songs that you listened to growing up or people you listened to growing up or that your parents were listening to? Were there influences that we might not noticed listening to against me new kids on the block um, really i was huge into new kids Whoa. on the block when i was like eight years old you know um mc hammer um millie vanilli i loved that cassette <laughs> regardless of the controversy or not um i had like a definite pop side in that way fine young cannibals that album is so fucking solid mm-hmm. um but so definite like you know those type of bands like i wasn't into like tiffany or debbie gibson or anything like that but um you know i i kind of got into music without mtv just because i was living overseas at the time That's right. so th- the bands that like hit me like nirvana and stuff <clears throat> like that were just coincidental when i moved back to the u.s and re and discovered mtv for the first time those were the bands that mtv was playing all the time but before that it was just going to a military px looking and seeing what was on the rack and and looking you know what cover looks cool I'm going to also ask you a question that I ask all, or at least most of our guests. Uh, I usually ask it at the end, but since we're talking about music, I'm going to ask it now. What did you think of the Eagles, America's most popular band? <laughs> I ask every guest this. I always get a different answer. I don't fucking like the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like the Eagles? Um, I like um, one period, but then I think they're like 75 to 76. And I do like the Hotel California record. Right. We really started asking this question because I had Stephen Malkmus on the podcast from Pavement. And we got into this thing about the Eagles, and he was just so anti-Eagles. And he was just saying they were just horrible, rich hippies and just just exuded the, the worst aspect of 70s beard, you know, <laughs> cowboy rock. And I was defending them, and it just kind of became this thing on the podcast where everyone gets their shot to – Take of the Eagles or, or, or defend them. I was shocked. Moby loves them. Huh. Moby was on the podcast and talked about how much he loves them. 
you know, I might be a Neanderthal to all of this in a, in a lot of ways, and um, uh, I've never said I'm not, but things start early. Things start happening very early for you. It's not as if this is something that happens to you in high school. There are traces of it running through you in childhood. You are drawn toward Madonna, though you might have been anyway. Um, you're kind of, you talk about in the book how you were very curious about Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, you're really drawn to the androgyny of Guns N' Roses. So this is happening. This whole dysphoria thing is beginning at a fairly young age. It's not some kind of what I think a lot of people who don't know this is not like some form of rebellion. I mean, it's a thing. Right. So you were aware of this from what age? Consciousness? Yeah. I mean, that. like I talk about Madonna a lot just because like that was a first moment of self-identification. You know, it was like looking at someone and not feeling a sexual impulse, feeling an impulse that was completely different of just like, I, like, I hope to become that person. Like you're you're like so enamored with the way they look as an adult figure and Mm -hmm. wanting to grow up into them, you know? And it just that sensation because I'd felt attraction already, but I hadn't felt like that, you know, that, that I knew something was different about the way I was feeling. And I mean, Mia Farrow, like at the time when I was like six, seven years old, like I, thought I kind of looked like her. Like I had the mm-hmm. same haircut, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, in Rosemary's Baby, and it was a fascinating movie. Um, but yeah, it was always there. It was always present. I just didn't have words for it until I was like, I, I didn't I didn't hear the word transgender until I was like 19, 20, you know? Um, so it, it was also something that was like, inherently at the same time I knew there was shame, you know, and that I mm-hmm. shouldn't shouldn't be proud of this. I shouldn't talk about this and that it was something, something was different, you know? I know this is considered politically incorrect to talk about, and it's an idea that many people don't like to talk about. But the question that many of us uh, wrestle with, or maybe just accept, uh, those of us who were bullied in school, and I include myself, the question we ask ourselves sometimes, and and of course it depends on the degree of bullying, and I'm talking mostly about elementary school and, and into junior high, does it ever make you stronger? Does one rise up to it? Does it, in fact, aid you in becoming an adult? Or does it, for some people, stunt you? I look at a lot of men from my generation. I'm about at least 18 years older than you. And we compare bullying stories. Um, Eli Roth did it last year on this podcast. And he said, look, we weren't dealing with you know um, uh, school shootings in the Internet in the 70s and 80s. But we were hands-on bullied. And certainly... None of us were committing suicide because of it. And we really believed it toughened us up and was in many ways perhaps one of the gateways to make defiant art, to say fuck it, to go there in my music, in my movies, in my novels, to get it early that people suck, kids can be cruel, life can be hard, and that sometimes the two are completely intertwined, being bullied and becoming an artist. That is a very commonplace narrative. The bullying hurts, but it also it also emboldened me in a way as a writer that I don't think I would have been if I had been completely coddled, accepted, popular, groomed as the king of the prom. If I had been that student, I don't think I would have ever written Less Than Zero. Do you ever feel that your artistic growth stemmed from you being an outsider, the other, the bullied, the excluded? Completely. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it dictated the path that I would take, like, especially even like, you know, kind of climaxing and getting arrested and beaten up by police when I was 14 years old. And then like, you know, being charged as a, you know, 
being charged as an adult and convicted eventually as a felon. And that still follows you. That still follows you? Yeah. I mean, I had to go and get like a letter of criminal rehabilitation so I can enter into Canada. Um, It's, you know, it's something that like I got arrested when I was in my late twenties and it was an issue, you know, that was brought up then. Um, It's, it's stupid. I like, I I got arrested a couple of times after that, you know, and all the arrests like kind of still every once in a while will come up. Um, But like, you know, all of those things, like I credit being arrested to politicizing me, you Mm -hmm. know, and originally getting beat up took me out of bands that were more uh, hippie-ish, if you want to put it like that, because punk rock was like, okay, well, punk rock's more about fighting back. And punk rockers seemed like they still got beat up a fair amount, but like they would at least get a couple punches in too, you know? Um, and it definitely made me less inhibited when it came out to uh, came to like standing up to authority figures in school that I knew couldn't physically do anything to me because I knew whatever stupid punishment they would hand out wouldn't physically hurt, you know? So right. it was like inconsequential. Sure, send me to detention. Give me Saturday school. Fuck it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I still, I am still sometimes haunted by that because I do think, well, that wasn't a happy childhood, though. I mean, of course, parts of it were, but certainly being bullied sucked. Did you ever win a fight? No. Yeah, me neither. That, that, that sometimes still bugs me, where I'm like, you know, I don't know where that comes from, but I, like, it, damn, it would have been nice to actually like have come out ahead in a fight. You yeah. know, like, what would that have feel that feeling have been like? You know, mm-hmm. how would that have changed me? Well, actually, I, as I became bigger, it really stopped happening. But at a certain point, when I wasn't at my full height yet or whatever, it just seemed almost like a ritual at the school I was with that it, the, the younger kids were just picked on and bullied. Though also in elementary school, I mean, that that was also true. There was still this hierarchy of older kids and younger kids stuff. And it is a strange thing to talk about because, look, if all of these obstacles that I had to deal with, all this pain I had to deal with, the difficulties of my relationship with my father – um, being bullied, being an outsider, being gay, and really not talking about that. All of this pain helped create art, helped create work. And I really can't extract the two. And sometimes I ask myself, well, it was worth it. In a way, it was worth it. I mean, it shouldn't happen. I, I would not wish my kid to be bullied in any way. But I do look at a lot of people I know who are artists of some note, and this just happened to them, and it really help give them a vision of the world that was not in a bubble in a way. Like I saw both sides about it. I saw, you know, the nice sides. I saw the bad side. I saw, you know, it just made me want to look more at things. Sure. But, but it also sucks. And it also is interesting because I do think about this a lot. I do think about bubbles and people in bubbles and how social media kind of encourages you to build your own bubble to unfollow people, to block this, to only have things you like in your feed. And then reality comes into the picture, and then you collapse. People just collapse. They can't deal with it. And I I think that really getting to know disappointment and pain at a young age is really kind of a vital thing, and I would encourage that. And you see helicoptering parents all over the the, the time now. They, They block everything from their kids. They don't want anything to, none of real life to enter into the picture. And I now, at the age I'm at, I know I'm talking much more than you are, but I, I, I now think at this age that I am glad that I had the painful experiences I had growing up in order to 
right. feeling that now. You know, I was thinking about that actually this morning as I was eating breakfast because I was reading an interview that you did, I think, with Vice and um, talking about the similar thing. And I had also woken up to like a kind of bad review or whatever and was like, you know, unfollow, <laughs> thinking that or like, thinking, like, do I fire? Like, you know, your initial instinct is like fire off a, you know, a quick yeah. like fire back or right. something like that. And I didn't, you know, but like that, that was the start of my day is thinking of those things, having that thing and then thinking about what you were saying with that, you know, um, and that, yeah, you know, people do exist in a bubble in that way. And, you you know, I don't I, I am appreciative of criticism when it comes down yes. to it. You know, yes. like that doesn't mean I like like hearing it or I'm going to sit there and smile while someone gives it to me. But like I always grow from it and I can always do something better from it. And I find that like I I kind of th- thrive under pressure in that way. You know, like I need adversity as an artist yes. to feel like I'm doing yes. something. But how about ignoring criticism, too? Because I don't know how I did it, but at a very young age, I was able to just deflect criticism. Like, it wasn't a part of making my stories or my books. It was a very kind of almost hermetic thing. It wasn't made by many other voices. I mean, my voice was my voice. And, yeah, it stung a little bit to to have people in writing workshops tell me that my story sucked or that, you know, why are you doing it this way? But I had a curious reaction. Like, okay, I, I just saw this disconnect between what I was doing and what they were saying about it. And I do really believe, and especially after flailing around Hollywood, um, I really do believe that the best art is not made by a committee. It's not made by a democracy. And it's impossible to make art, I think, really strong art by a democratic committee. The best totally. art. But yet, you, it's very hard to get people to like think this now. Oh, what about diversity? What about this? What about all these things that have to be in it in order to make it, you know? The thing, though, that irks me, like, is like, I've been the same. I've always been able to like separate and like be like, keep it in perspective of what really matters. And, you know, will, will a critic like be the thing that's remembered or will the work be the thing that's remembered? I've had good perspective on that, but I, I always have trouble letting go of factual inaccuracies. It's not someone saying something mean. It's like you said something wrong, just like factually wrong in that criticism and you need to, it needs to be right. (laughs) I totally agree. But why were you reading a vice interview with me this morning? I was, I don't know. That's not a, very good interview. <laughs> Why? The sad, those sad photos of me looking off, and I, 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 that's the interview where I'm kind of like the the old man on the porch yelling for the kids to get off my lawn. Is that the one where I'm calling them Generation Wuss or something? Well, you might have said Generation Wuss, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get the old man on the porch telling, okay. yelling at them no, to get I, off vibe from it. I, I, I enjoyed the interview. I don't feel that way, and I uh, and I've written about Generation Wuss, and I I'm, I live with a member of Generation Wuss, so I'm all I'm very empathic to the problems and extremely annoyed by them as well. So it, uh, talking about uh, our images in terms of being public person, being you know having a public persona, as a writer, I don't really feel the pressure so much as I would imagine the leader of a band because there is an image to that. There, an image to the writer, I mean, I guess kind of I had one in my 20s, but not really. But, you know, getting back to this, and I, we won't mention Tom too much anymore, but as a male kid, you were tall and whether you like it or not, good looking, and you must have had a lot of women into you. And I'm, am I wrong to think that you had no problem picking up women? Honestly, no. I mean, like hearing you say those things about me in your intro, I was like, really? Like that—that that was just like the complete opposite of my self-perception. And I feel like that I have uh, better odds, if you want to put it like that, <laughs> as an out trans person than I did before when I was closeted. And I think it 
really though that had a lot to do with my just like what it did to my personality is that it made me more closed off and like yeah. kind of weird in a bad way you know oh youth is wasted on the young if I knew if I knew then what I know now it would have been a different story. of course of course <laughs> but 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 you the image of the band of against me was uh, I would think by uh, which was I think not only the songwriting not only the possibility of the band but you know the front man there's a lot of commercial potentials there there's there's a very dashing and exploitable front man at the stage on, on the head of the stage too along with the song I just was, didn't see it there was a package there that I think everyone wanted and you were never aware of I it I was totally oblivious to it yeah I first saw you Laura on George Strombolopoulos's I can't even pronounce his name on Strombolopoulos yes and uh, it was on CNN in the spring of 2014 I believe and it paved, kind of paved the way for me uh, for the debut of Caitlyn Jenner in the spring of 2015. I had missed the MTV House of Style episode you did in 2013. Right. And I guess after, I mean, I guess when I'm looking back, I've been thinking a lot about the band and you um, this past month or so. Um, I guess after White Crosses had played out for me and I had really just gotten all I could get out of that, uh, I guess um, I started paying attention to other things. I mean, there's so many bands to get distracted by. And I guess I really wasn't following the narrative that you were dealing with, even though I was a fan. I mean... And as I said, that, that that was kind of my first real moment of seeing someone I was familiar with transitioning. And I kind of, because I fall into a sentimental narrative that I'm not happy about, but I was kind of incredibly moved by it. I was moved by that in- interview on CNN. I hadn't seen that before. This is, again, a year before, before Caitlyn Jenner. And I think it helped lessen the shock for me about Caitlyn Jenner, though, um, uh, as I've said before many, many times in this show, everybody in show business has known for decades that Bruce was going to do this at some point. Now, this is a very general question, but I am interested. What are your feelings about Caitlyn Jenner and how that played out, uh, the way she decided to go public and the whole Caitlyn Jenner narrative? I kind of like chose to have a mental blockade on it in ways where I never like I never watched the Kardashians and I wasn't of the generation where I knew uh, Caitlyn as an Olympian. You know, like that, I, I didn't have the Wheaties box or anything like that growing up. So they were just this like, OK, there's this TV show called the Kardashians. Like it had no impact on me and then hearing con- that that she was coming out you know I wasn't like well now I'm going to go and, and be a vulture and watch the story or watch the interview and we happened to be on tour in Europe at, this, at the time too so it was like I missed the Vanity Fair article being on newsstands and like just chose because that was already lining up that way to just not pay attention and to just know that like okay here's a trans person coming out they're already famous it's going to have a level of complication to it I don't know this person I don't know their politics I can support them from a distance just as a fellow human being and yeah that's it you know like there was no reason for me to develop any kind of other commentary on it really um i like have been aware of like what's happened with the show or like you know controversial statements she's made politically or whatever um but you know whatever i don't know so you didn't watch i am kate the I, show. I, no, I have never seen it. But I know a lot of the people who were on it. I, and they were on like my True Trans documentary that I did. Or like Kate, people like Jenny Bolin or... Uh, yeah, or uh, uh, yeah, Jen Richards. Jen Richards. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And then like uh, Kate Bornstein. Kate Bornstein. I, I, I met and uh, I, I love. So I love I, Kate Bornstein. Too, yeah. yeah. Well, look, for me, the Caitlyn Jenner narrative, and I did watch the show. I thought the show was really interesting and I learned so much. I know it's ridiculous from a reality show. But the way it was done wasn't exploitative. I think Caitlyn Jenner upended my preconceptions that I had about transgender identity. 
Mm-hmm. The identity politics bubble I live in in West Hollywood, it can be very small. You, you don't see much more of the world than what it wants you to see. And that someone transgender can be a rich Republican jock athlete was really eye-opening to me. I, I guess I assumed it's 90% across the board, this, this, and this. And I thought it was refreshing that he was a Republican who at one point on the show was hassled by the other women on the bus he's traveling across the country with. And Caitlin says at one point, when everyone on the bus is supporting Hillary Clinton and Caitlin is voting Republican in the upcoming election, they all chastise because Clinton has made it clear that she's very pro-trans and... Do you think that Caitlyn Jenner was beat up in high school, though? Do you think they were bullied? Probably not, right? They were like a jock, right? So so maybe that had something to do with, like, their political viewpoints and the way that they see the world. Well, an incredibly painful childhood and adolescence Bruce Jenner had. I mean, he he knew from five, at five, he said. And he had an incredibly – he was completely withdrawn, completely tormented his entire – you know, uh, childhood and into his adolescence. But his point was kind of like, okay, I am transgender, but I cannot get into a conversation about where we are going to pee when the country has a $20 trillion deficit. My views on who I'm going to be politically drawn towards are about, of course, things that are self-serving to me, taxes, you know, uh, trade, immigration. But it was a moment because a lot of people solely define themselves by a certain thing. I look, look at it as a gay man. It's, it's lessening now because gay has become more accepted into certain sections of our society. But it, it could get strident at times when you're only defining yourself by this one thing. And there are moments when you have to, you know, and it was interesting to see how this moment is kind of becoming hopefully more elastic in a way. Mm-hmm. So I'm not defending Caitlyn Jenner's politics or anything like that, but I just thought, okay, here's some inclusivity. We're going to allow this person in. He's going to be part of a group. We're not all the same on, on a certain level. And I, and that is a kind of diversity in a way. Um, we might not like it, but there are, you know, as there are many different kinds of gay, there's many different kinds of. Well, and I also think it's important to not discredit like Caitlin for having the foresight of like, you know, it obviously she had control over who was on the show. So her inviting people who had differing perspectives, she had to have some knowledge of that, of that they weren't going to just like go along with everything she had to say. Conflict. Right. And her having them on there mm-hmm. is like, you know, representing different viewpoints, hopefully, you know, so that that at least is a good thing. So there are differences between a man's brain and a woman's brain. What are the differences? But when one says things like this, there's often outrage. When Lawrence Summers was the president of Harvard, he made a speech in 2005 where he suggested that men and women have different brains. Uh, This was about the underrepresentation of women in science and the engineering fields and why this might be. And the reaction was swift and merciless. He was considered a sexist and a misogynist and alumni withheld donations and faculty members wanted him fired and he was forced to resign. And yet when Bruce Jenner, not as Caitlin yet, not as Caitlin yet, said the very same thing in an interview he did with Diane Sawyer a month before he emerged as Caitlin, he was actually lionized for his bravery and his progressivism. He said, my brain is much more female than male, explaining how he knew he was transgender. And then suddenly ESPN gave Jenner an award for courage. Obama went out and appraised him. So it's interesting. How, how far have we come in terms of understanding this? And was Lauren Summers wrong? Is Caitlyn Jenner right? What, where, where do you stand on this? Well, um... You know, in answer to the question of how far have we come, I don't think we've come very far no, at all. I know, um, I know. But as far as like, 
you know, not knowing specifically what, what Caitlin was saying with what the differences are between a man and a woman's brain, from my perspective, what rings true in that is knowing that, like, well, that's the point of hormone replacement therapy, is that if there is a difference between a man and a woman's brain like that, it's the chemical balance that's happening in there. So, like, both of us have estrogen and testosterone in us, but if you put a little bit more estrogen in you, you will feel a certain different way. You just will, because there is a different chemical balance happening in your brain versus if you have more testosterone in your brain. Like, you will react emotionally different ways. You will think about things in different ways. And, I mean, that, you know, to me, as, like, someone who's done a lot of experimentation with drug use and everything like that, I can't help but think of it in that terms, too, of, like, if I do cocaine, I will think and act this way. If I do estrogen, I will think and act this way. But that, from a doctor's perspective, is what hormone replacement therapy is about, you know, is making your brain work in a female way or a male way or whatever, you know? Interesting. I want to get to an idea that uh, about being role models. Who is a role model? Who wants to be a role model? I mean, I, listening to your music, I think you are the last thing from being whatever the dreaded notion of politically correct, the bad side of politically correct. And I don't even know what politically correct means anymore. But again, going back to I Am Kate, I know you haven't seen it. And I, and I want to get to uh, why you called your book what it did. In I Am Kate, there was always a tension between old school Kate Bornstein at 68, who was totally fine with the term cranny. She had no problem with it. Whereas the boomer academic, Jenny Boylan, was by far the most politically correct and had a kind of language authoritarianism that you can't say these words. The dialogue has to change in a way. And it caused a lot of tension. I mean, Jenny Boyle thought cranny was almost as bad as the N-word or faggot, that you can't say that. And Kate Bornstein adamantly disagreed with that. Of course, Tranny, I guess, is not considered politically correct in a way, but so what? I mean, you don't seem like a politically correct artist to me, whatever that might mean in terms of embracing ideals of utopia. And just you seem to be much more raw and honest about that. But why did you name your book Tranny? And do you have any feelings about being a role model? Right. Well, I when I, you know... I find being politically correct valid when it it can be more easily referred to as like just being commonly common courtesy, you yes. know, right, yes. uh, or common sense, right, right. Um, but when it comes down to it, no, you know, I don't. I hate feeling like uh, confined by political correctness or something like that. And and you know, I, I understand that tranny is like a hot button word, and there's a lot of conflict behind it. But again, I was coming into this, you know, coming out as being transgender, like just because I came out at transgen- as trans when I was 30 doesn't mean I was any less transgender before I came out or anything like that, just because I didn't have a full understanding of the words or the terminology or anything like that. So like coming out at 30 or something like that, um, wondering like, okay, when is the first time I'm going to be called tranny? You know, like when is the, what is my relationship to this word going to be? Because I'm afraid of the word because it's always had negative connotations to me. Um, so I, I had like braced for that moment, and when it first happened, it was another trans person referring to me just in a in a friendly way, you know, no hostility or anything like that, just being like talking one tranny to another. They told me, and it really made me think. But I know the politics behind the word, and I, you know, I get that it's like a slur to most people, and it's the last word that a lot of trans people hear before they're brutally beaten to death. Mm-hmm. Um, I I ran into Kate Bornstein about two weeks ago at the Miami Book Fair, and um, someone was introducing us to each other and brought up the title of the book and 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 Kate was like oh well Laura's another person who doesn't have a problem with the word and I was like well I don't know I you know like it it does make me uncomfortable I don't necessarily like the word and she's like well do you know the history of the word mm-hmm. and I was like 
no, I don't know the history of the word. And she's like, well, it came from trans women, specifically Australian trans women who have the tendency to shorten everything like barbecue into Bobby and so transsexual into tranny, which I was like, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. That doesn't necessarily make me like the word anymore. It kind of makes the word just more annoying, but like it makes sense. And then like from an outside perspective, it's like, what do you do in the situation where one person, an elder trans person is saying like, this is my relationship with the word. I'm fine with it. And then you have another trans person, most likely a younger trans person saying, you cannot use this word for me as an artist i'm like well i'm gonna fucking use the word whether i want to use the word or not and i hate it if someone's telling me a word is off limit or like shouldn't be addressed in any way like then my natural instinct is well then let's direct you know attention on that um but what do you do when you're kind of in the middle of those two scenarios of like my relationship with the word is rather new yours is way older than mine and yours is way older than mine but they're coming from two different perspectives I want to get your take on something that the journalist and former professor of women's studies, Eleanor Burkett, wrote in a New York Times op-ed piece last year about Caitlyn Jenner, and it caused some controversy within the transgender community, and I, I want to read a bit from it and get your response to this. She thinks that the transgender community is under a mistaken impression on what it means to be a woman, and she writes, and this is in response again to Caitlyn Jenner and Chelsea Manning. She, and she's a feminist. She's, she wrote, their truth is not my truth. Their female identities are not my female identities. They haven't traveled through the world as women and been shaped by all it entails. They have throughout their lives been treated like men. And they haven't suffered through business meetings with men talking to their breasts or woken up after sex terrified that they've forgotten to take their birth control pills the day before. They haven't had to cope with the onset of their periods in the middle of crowded subways, the humiliation of discovering that their male work partner's checks were far larger than theirs, or the fear of being too too weak to ward off a rapist. She goes on to argue that the real differences between the male and female brain is mostly caused by the drip, drip, drip of the gendered environment we have built and are brought up in, and that the drip, drip, drip of, for example, Miss Jenner's experience includes a hefty dose of male privilege few women anywhere could possibly ever imagine, and that she suggests this is true for a lot of transsexuals now. By defining womanhood the way many advocates for transgender rights is to ignore those realities, does any of this resonate or is that just hopeless kind of first wave feminism? Where is she coming from and how do you feel about that? Um, It does resonate. I understand what she's saying, you know, like and but of course I've had a different experience than she's had. You know, I've had the experience of being a trans person and a closeted trans person for X amount of years. So like, you know, all those experiences she mentioned were negative experiences. I've had my own unique negative experiences that were based on my identity. That's the way it fucking works for everybody. And if you're going to talk about like intersectionality of like privileges, sure. Like I get it. I'm white, you know, like I was socialized male, but I'm, I, can I just like hand it back? Like, can I get, can I give up privilege? Like, I know I can't. Right. Um, but what do you do with that? What, like, I'm sorry. Um, I, 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 for most of my adult life, I have, you know, tried to rebel against all of those things. I've tried to better myself and become a more politically conscious person and to be a respectful person and to accept people as equals. And to hopefully with my band, create a space that's like welcoming for anyone of regardless of age, race, sex, like, and or any politics like that. Like these are the schools of thought that I've always been interested and I've always tried to listen to other people's perspectives. I mean, you can argue the minutia of that down to like to death, you know, yeah. but I, I don't know what else to say, you know? Yeah. I want to talk about narcissism, the narcissism of the artist, that it is 
purely a part of a process that anyone who is going to build songs, build a movie, build a novel is uh, interiorizing things, is thinking about things, is thinking about themselves, wanting to talk about it. The act of writing the memoir is, in fact, a narcissistic endeavor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and your ex-wife, Heather Hanora, called you a narcissist after reading Tranny. And I'm wondering, <laughs> does it dealing with the gender dysphoria or even being closeted or being the face of a band, doesn't it all that kind of encourage a kind of narcissism? You're thinking about yourself a lot. You're thinking about your problems a lot. Um, doesn't this automatically lead to a kind of narcissism? And again, also, if you're also, you know, an artist, um, what was her problem with the book? Did her calling you that mean something more than just the book itself? What was she getting at? I mean, I think she was just joking. I think she was just (laughs) kind of taking a jab at me. You know, it wasn't like that, like damning or anything like that. She's just like, you know, should have called the book Baby, I'm a Narcissist or something like that. Um, But I can I can take that. I don't know. You know, like um, I get it. Writing a memoir is a really like, you know, head up your own ass type of endeavor to do, especially when you're 36 years old. Um, But I don't know. Like to me, writing was always an outlet of like. resulting from having really low self-esteem, you know, and trying to like build myself Mm -hmm. up and, and becoming like a kind of insular person in that way was the result of like feeling like no one was really like, you know, was there for me or anything like that. Or I didn't have anyone else to rely on but myself. So I had to like really think about things and I had to really build myself up. I don't know. I, 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 um, I, I think it's okay. Whatever. Versus the single is a conversation I've had with a lot of musicians on this podcast, all of them arguing for the record, for a song cycle, that records are built, actually, that they're, the track listing is important, that every record tells a story, and that the single really kind of doesn't do that in the way that a record has. And this has simply been the reality of the last decade or so, the overwhelming importance of the single over the record. Though, of course, I don't think that Transgender Dysphoria Blues really, as it's, it's a cycle of great songs, and I like listening to that album as uh, in total. I don't like just like skimming around. I start that record, it moves really fast, and I... It, it's almost like watching an episode of a, of a show in a way. It builds, it stops, it becomes introspective, it gets exciting again, uh, and I, that's how I listen to that's how I listen to music. Now, my boyfriend, uh, who is thirty, 
listens to singles. It's a single, single, single. And I, he loved that record when I introduced it to him. And of course, since we were playing in the car, he had to listen to the whole thing, even though he's got total ADD. But, you know, maybe it is changing now. I don't know. There was a lot of excitement earlier this year for, um, you know, uh, last year for Kendrick Lamar's record and Beyonce, um, you know, widely, kind of as widely viewed as album experiences. Um, and with, with Beyonce kind of, long-form expressions of new content, regardless of what they were. There was a kind of totality to them. People liked the Kendrick Lamar record. I can't imagine as a musician you've ever thought of singles versus records or singles rather than records. And do you miss the idea in the culture of a the rock record? But first I wanted to know, have you ever thought while writing a song, oh, this is the single. I've written the single. I can't imagine that you didn't maybe think that after writing Thrash Unreal. I don't know. <laughs> um I have thought it, but I didn't think it with Thrash Unreal. That was like an odd song for us. Um, but, um, but yeah, like with I Was a Teenage Anarchist, I was like, this is the single. We yeah. just wrote the single for the record, right. you know? Right. Um, but that was definitely something that was also a result of being in the major label world and being more aware of it. But we weren't built as a singles band where it was all about getting a hit on the radio. You know, like um, I think – I think a certain amount of like the single versus the, the album thing goes back to even the beginning. Like there was a pre-album era where people Correct. were more, fo- more focused on singles, on 45s, on getting like one or two songs, A side and the B side, right? And then you started doing records. Um, I like storytelling in a record where yes. you like from start to finish is a full thought. The Kate Tempest record that just came out, Let Them Eat Chaos, if you haven't heard that. I haven't. Incredible. Okay. And it's yeah. like it's like uh, if you ever listen to that Streets record, A Grand Don't Come for oh, Free. Oh, I love that record. Yeah. That, right. that, that's, that does that. And by the time you get to dry your eyes, you are kind of – Right. You, and it, there's, it's an built up to it. Yeah. there's an arc. There's an arc. And in the same way, it was like interesting working on a book being like, oh, well, you know, your songs are like chapters. And they're just like different parts of the story. Um, but not everyone approaches record making in that way. And I think that has to do with like just differences. You know, of course, like – pop stars usually traditionally have been more about the single and less about the album. Um, but a lot of times those are people aren't even writing their songs. They have multiple writers working on something. So it's all kind of being piecemealed together anyways, you know? Um, but if, if it's a good, I strive to make a good record that's listenable from start to finish. But the other question is, and I know this is another kind of generality, is about what happened to rock music? I mean, I know that I read somewhere where you were talking about Warren Zevon and Desperados Under the E's and what an amazing song that was. And just the fact that no one is really making music like that anymore. And even though the New York Times recently ran a piece uh, about Desert Trip, uh, Old Cella is the smirky nickname right. for the, the Fossil, <laughs> and how all the headliners were in their 70s. Yeah. There was no one under 70. The headliners were all 70 <laughs> and over. Everyone had been born in the 1940s. And yet it was the most successful music festival ever, grossing like $116 million. Well, they're all legends in their <laughs> 70s. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but, and there was, uh, you know, beautiful porta potties and the best food you could possibly get in ten dollar coffee. Of course, it grows so much, but but it is all nostalgic acts. I mean, they're nostalgic acts basically. I mean, in in a way. Um, so most people, I think, there's nostalgia to them if they have a career that's long, of course. But I mean, at least like I'm a Bob Dylan fan, yeah. and it's not like he's surrendered to being a jukebox and playing the hits. You know, no, like that's true. he's continually changing the way he plays his old songs if he plays his old songs and continuing to do new records. 
So like a lot of times that nostalgia thing is is just other people's perception of you. Like we're starting to reach that point as a band where people are like like a couple times doing doing press around this record, people are like punk legend Laurentian Grace. I'm like what? Um, like it's just like part of being a band for 20 years. Then you become like you, you have these age points where people start labeling you in different ways. Oh, I'm completely there. I'm <laughs> like completely there. I am totally treated like some old old man by you know regarded in this way that is just I never thought in my 20s that I would get to but it, it happens you know but, but what do you think what, what do you think um, rock stopped being at the center of the culture in terms of the dominant music I mean what I, I don't know I miss it uh, I can't find it I look for it I mean your band certainly uh, hits my sweet spot in a way, and but I'm thinking of like it's so rare. Even like a Courtney Barnett, I don't know if you've. Heard I do. Of, I love Courtney Barnett. Uh, I yeah. love that. That I want more records like that, and I and everything is either you know hip hop or it's it's all Drake or Beyonce. I don't know. Where do you um? What why do you think it's not at the center anymore? I think a lot of it has to do with the way records are recorded completely. You know, in that like there are very few honest rock records that are musicians actually playing the records from front to back, and it's not just a mishmash of overdubs. And that's not saying that my records aren't mishmashes of overdubs. Just like that, that people aren't as like uh, it's no trick. You know what I mean? It's not like whoa, you recorded that, you made that sound. You, the four of you in a room, plugged your amps in, you know, like guitars in, and you started playing, and that's what came out of it. That's incredible. It's like, oh, you put that together the same way someone would put together a hip hop record or any other record where they're just in Pro Tools, like, you know, yeah. perfecting it to death. I mean, the idea of spending millions and millions of do- dollars on a, on a nine song record that takes a year to record <laughs> is not happening anymore, I guess. I mean, when I hear. You bands have that luxury, yeah. When I hear stories about Bruce Springsteen making Darkness on the Edge of Town and was trying to get out of the. He hated the airless sound of the studio and they were tr- and they spent months and months trying to figure out do we open this door do we right. put tape under have you this? ever read the book perfecting sound forever no well that talks a lot about how like uh certain trends in recording techniques are just reactions to each other and mm-hmm. that, like how that trend and especially like the born in the usa trend was like in a reaction to the eagles it was a reaction to <laughs> yeah. the eagles right and to that really dry close mic'd sound yeah. that was coming out of here so they wanted a different sound than that you know, one of the grimly funny stories from Tranny in, uh, is the moment you hand in a list of demos the band has recorded for the new record, and included among them as a cover of the Replacements' "Bastards of Young" from their 1985 record Tim. And the A and R guys love it, and they tell you it's that it's the best song that you've written. <laughs> and the band recorded uh, your band recorded a record, I think, in the same studio where the Replacements recorded uh, "Please to Meet Me," uh, perhaps my favorite album too. And while reading Tranny, I was thinking about how about all the lessons learned from the replacements narrative. And for those of you who don't know the story, it really is kind of about how a great band undermines itself from becoming major stars because they just can't help it in a way. I read this recent biography uh, of them, and it was so painful to read about them getting on that ladder and then knocking each other off it, not being able to play the game, and because of some kind of displaced sense that if they succeed, they will become contradictions in a way. There was this thought hovering around the band. And like their hardcore roots merging with Paul Westerberg's great songwriting skills, 
will somehow make them nothing, will cancel each other out. There's always this tension in the band about making it messier, making it scuzzier. Let's do really shitty shows, you know. Let's just get <laughs> fucking drunk and do really <laughs> shitty shows. And I remember seeing them. They were in New York. Uh, this was like maybe for the Don't Tell a Soul uh, tour. That was. I saw them twice in New York. Once at the Beacon Theater where I paid a lot of money for four seats. And my friends, they were terrible. They were absolutely – couldn't finish songs. And then I went by myself down to, I forgot what the name of the club was and saw them two nights later. And they were one of the best concerts I've ever seen in my life. It was perfect. And so there was this thing going back and forth between them, kind of wanting the success, but fucking it up for themselves um, because of some kind of punk ideology in a way or kinship with a punk ethos um, that created the band. But that really didn't matter when you're making records as good as either Tim or Please to Meet Me or Don't Tell a Soul. or You know, they made four or five classic records and were arguably, I think, the best American rock band of the 80s. But they just kept shooting themselves in the foot. They can't take it seriously because they think that's who they should be, therefore not getting not getting to become that place where R.E.M. went, for, for, for example, or someplace like that. You went through your own drama that's very, very different from The Replacements. You were striving forward as a band. I mean, um, not that you wanted to be whatever, but yet your initial punk audience resented the band to the point where they would protest the band you were becoming. Another kind of frustration, I guess, and I want to talk about that in a minute, but first of all, what do you think of The Replacements narrative looking back at it, and what did you think of The Replacements in general as a band? Well, you know, I think that it's really telling that we're talking about the replacements X amount of years after they broke up. And like, I really identified with the replacements in that way of like, you're like shooting yourself in the foot as you're taking a step. And that's very much like a punk mentality and it stems from punk guilt, you know, of like, you start out playing shows in the way you're playing shows because you can't get gigs at the place that the bigger bands are playing at, you know, and you're like, Oh, we're not on MTV. So we'll do our own scene and fuck MTV, you know? And then as you realize like, wait, actually we could be on MTV. You like have this warring guilt inside of you. Right. Um, but then also it's like, it was almost like, a, a like a misstep in judging, like, how you could become a bigger band and thinking that like, well, this will be our identity as a band, you know, like maybe we'll get famous because we're the most fucked up band and we're the ones playing these disastrous shows. And we're talking about that and no one's talking about REM, you know, like, you know, and like punk bands want to be the replacements still to this day. We wanted to be the replacements. There's a whole slew, new, a new slew of bands that want to be the replacements. So who's to say they weren't just really successful with what they did. They made really great, records and they're still talked about and remembered as a band where many who were on the top of the charts back then aren't uh my second man we wanted to be the replacements and the replacements were just starting in a way they were just they just released let it be and we were still wanted to you know right and paul westerberg went on to have a you know prolific solo career with many like commercial successes in soundtracks you know i mean doing like pixar movies um joe corey i think that's how you pronounce his name is the son of sex pistols manager malcolm mclaren and fashion designer vivian westwood and this week, he set fire to an estimated five million pounds worth of love it. punk memorabilia on a boat on the River Thames. And he torched the items as part of a protest against what he saw as a commercialization of punk rock. In particular, he was angered by plans to 
mark 40 years of the punk subculture with an upcoming program events, gigs and exhibitions called Punk London, which is going to be supported by the Mayor of London, the British Library and the British Film Institute. Corey has said, um, punk was never meant to be nostalgic and you can't learn to be one at the Museum of London workshop. Punk has become another marketing tool to sell you something you don't need. The illusion of alternative choice, conformity in another uniform. He burned rare sex pistols recordings and clothes belonging to Johnny Rotten. The whole lot was worth around $7 million. First of all, what do you make of all of that? Um, also, you once said that you found the punk scene to be more closed-minded than the church. How do you reconcile <laughs> what's going on? I think it's great that all of that was burned. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think it's really punk, you know, and I think it's really like a... It's what everyone in the punk scene, if they could have seen what would have happened all those years forward, would have wanted. They'd been like, yes, burn it all, 100% across the board. Right. You know, don't sell it for millions of pounds. Um, but, you know, while I agree with many of those statements on what punk has become, like, one of the reasons why punk still exists is because it's really, like, up to the player, up to the user to redefine it and to make it constantly valid. Yes. So, like, anything that's... Uh, like current punk scene out there in the US or out there in the world like they all like think that those bands that were torched you know like the Sex Pistols Mm -hmm. that those were the bands that commodified punk those were the bands that made it into a joke so fuck those bands they weren't really punk you know (laughs) like that's what (laughs) keeps punk going is that you're able to write off that you know and and you're still connected to it but like it it, it doesn't define punk punk can redefine itself in a recent Tom Petty biography, there is a painful chapter about the recording of their major label breakthrough album, Damn the Torpedoes. And there are a lot of technical problems. Uh, songs had to be done 70 to 80 times compared to the two or three takes for the first two records. A click track had to be brought in for the drummer. And I've noticed this happening in other stories about bands recording their major label debut records. I mean, the joylessness of making that Tom Petty record is really shocking to read about, uh, especially compared to the fun they had making the first two Heartbreaker records. Uh, and even though it pays off, Damn the Torpedoes is a massive, massive hit. But the grueling nature of making Damn the Torpedoes changed the band forever in ways. It was never the same. The dynamic was ever the same. And especially when Petty realized he had to hold on to the publishing rights himself that added a kind of distance to the band another level of alienation this wasn't really the case with you and Butchvig at all when you were making New Wave you thought it was an amazing learning experience but did it at all change the dynamics of the band I mean you made made one of your first records like in a day I think recorded and mixed it in a day Um, first of all before we get into how if it did or didn't change the dynamics of the band how how does Butchvig make it work I mean how does he make everything sound so powerful and hooky how does he bring out all the melodies in those songs I mean, what kind of magic wand does he have? <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in some ways it was like really eye-opening and that it wasn't that complicated, you know, like where realizing kind of part of the act of producing is being like, okay, you see that part there? That's really good. Do more of that. You see that part there? That's really bad. Stop doing that, you know, and make sure your guitars are in tune and make sure like the tempos are good and like if it needs to speed up or fluctuate or whatever. Um but, you know, I really like – we got lucky in that Butch is the type of producer he is where he actually gives a shit and he's there every day in the studio with you. And it's not like he has a million other projects going on and he's just doing it for a paycheck or something like that. Um, 
there's like some there were some moments where like when you're spending a whole day playing the same chord progression while someone's dialing in different sounds on a pedal still being like nope it's not right and you from the get-go were like i can't hear a difference but eventually you're like wait i do hear the difference and i do understand why you're doing this and part of what you're doing even as a producer being someone who's been in the music industry for much longer than a young band like we were is is giving them the opportunity to get their worth out of the money that the label is spending on the project so they're like signing right. this record deal right for a million dollars but you're spending five hundred thousand dollars on making the record right so giving a young band the luxury to like experiment in the studio and to learn if they're paying attention to this is what a compressor does this is what a preamp does this is like you know this is this kind of console this is how you use all these things um it was just like an incredible learning experience i could have gone like living in florida i could have gone to full sale for some kind of recording on audio engineer college degree or something like that but everyone i know who's gone to full sale says it was kind of like a waste of time and they didn't really get anything of it and you need that real world experience you know so just having those opportunities was incredibly value for us valuable for us but we did get really lucky in that butch is just really like a salt of the earth type person was a drummer offended when you made New Wave that they had to bring in a click track for him as well? Like, we had kind of tackled that the first time through with the record before that. That that, was the first time. But that was because, like, the second record we made, which was at Ardent Studios, which we went to because the replacements made me pleased to meet me there, we, like, went in. We only recorded that in eight days. And, like, four days in, we had this night in the hotel room where we're listening back and we're like, yo, you're playing all these songs way too fast. They're just, like, blazing fast and they sound bad because of it. And it's because you're nervous and you're just... Mm -hmm. Forgetting what we were playing it, like where we played it live or where we played it in the practice space. So then the third record, we brought in the click track because there was just too much variation. And that was the first time we actually had to go in and like edit drum beats to be on time because otherwise it sounded like a balloon deflating. Um, but a lot of that just had to do with like the style of the drums that I was wanting to be played, where I wanted more 16th notes on a hi hat as opposed to eighth notes or whatever, you know, nuanced shit that he just couldn't do, couldn't keep a tempo with while doing, you know? And that was was like a point of conflict where you feel like for me as a songwriter being like I can't write the songs I want because you can't play the beats I want to be played with them and I know it's humanly possible to play these beats because I've heard other drummers do it because the records I listen to all do it you know um, so having to adopt, adapt your songwriting to fit another musician's like shortcomings not to be a dick or not to be a jerk but that was a really frustrating position to be put in
the memoir is a litany of music industry horror stories. I mean, you think things can't get any worse at times, but they do. And this is true for a lot of rock bios. This is totally true for the recent Tom Petty one, the replacements one. The music scene almost seems to encourage these <laughs> feel-bad moments. But there's a really interesting moment, I think, in Tranny where you talk about the making of the Thrash Unreal video. I like the video. I always like the video. Is what introduced the band to me. I I I take it you hate it. Um, I don't like that video. But, no, it's but the, embarrassing but, to me. Well, because it, getting back to the record company, it's the video the record company kind of wants you to make. Uh, you wanted to come in dressed as a woman, right? And they wanted you shirtless and wet, more or less, to sell that. <laughs> but you're also thinking when you're there on that set, and you you really if it, it is almost bleakly hilarious how you describe that day and the extras and the director and the fake wine <laughs> coming down and you know um but you do you are thinking to yourself play the game play the game see how this i don't know why. maybe they're right sure. maybe yeah. they're right because you don't want to have a bad attitude you want to like i wanted to go into it with a good attitude and being open-minded you know right and where did that get you? It got us nowhere. <laughs> I mean, what what I realized, though, is that, like, it's kind of pointless to make music videos in Los Angeles, especially then, um, where, you know, to us, like, being like, well, we're spending $100,000 on a music video was, like, mind-blowing. But to anyone working out here in that kind of industry, they're like, this is a really small-scale project. I'd rather be doing a movie right now. I'm just taking this for a day gig. I do not give a shit about this band or this video. And I realized that really quick. It was like, these people don't care. You know, they're just like taking a taking a gig. But you know, this does lead to the making of White Crosses, uh, where you are the good boy. You are going to play by the rules. You are going to see what happens to you if you do. It's kind of like a dare to yourself, but it's also genuine. And I think there are so many great songs, by the way, on that record. It's kind of a progression from the last record. I mean, Spanish Moss, Because of the Shame, We're Breaking Up, are very different sounding songs from what was on New Wave. Right. And I love the record, by the way. But it does sound like it is consciously going for a more mainstream kind of sound. And that's not a crime. Were there discussions, and were you guys all talking about this in the wake of New Wave selling 100000 and still not being enough for the company? Were you kind of, was that a, a, a conversation? That was a conversation, sure, but really it had more to do with the fact that we were having legal trouble. We were being sued. So, like, I, we had a two-firm record deal. You know, they mm -hmm. had to do two records. So, like, that was the one thing we had in our pocket. They had to do another record after New Wave. We had that. It was, like, $550,000 to make that record, right? So we knew we had that, and it was like, well, this is it. This is the last shot. You know, like, this is the last time we're going to have a major label push a record to radio for us. So if we're ever going to have a radio hit and be one of those bands, this is it. And that would really save us financially yes. because then we will be able to afford the hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills we have coming in and it'll it'll save the band. Right. So that was like that was the thought. Like let's let's write a hit. Yeah. I want to I want to write a hit record. This is my last shot at this. So I love those kind of records. I really do. I I, I love um the songs on that. And in a different way than maybe I love the rawness of Transgender Dysphoria Blues, but it's still don't you think it's a really good record? I love that record. Yeah, I'm really proud of it, you know? I I, I am. And and the experience of making it while different from New Wave and New Wave was maybe like just a little more new with with everything. Um but Dutch was still like, you know, such a such a great thing to happen to us and it was great working with him there, for that yeah i mean and there's another big leap in songwriting a huge one i think in shapeshift with me the new record 
as with Transgender Dysphoria Blues, you know, one has to look at these songs and hear them in terms of what happened to the artist, to you. And don't you think it has, in fact, and this whole narrative of gender dysphoria and the subsequent transgender experience, don't you think in a way that it has made you, in some ways, a greater artist? Uh, I can't help but not noticing that narrative. I mean, a song as good as uh, Delicate, Petite, and Other Things I'll Never Be, or 333, or All This on the new record, wouldn't have been in an earlier repertoire. Sure. So it is this narrative, the pain, the, what you've gone through, has actually elevated you to a kind of higher consciousness as artists. So <clears throat> that's another thing, getting back to the whole bullying notion that you go through what you go through, and then you make music like this. So... Let's say in another alternative universe, you had just stayed Tom Gable for whatever reason. I don't think you would have made these records. I, I know I wouldn't have. Yeah, no, for sure. So that must be on some level like an interesting idea about how to transform your pain, the disappointments in life, the things that life throws at you into art. It, that's what it's always been. You know, <clears throat> it's about taking a negative emotion, a negative experience or a trauma and and trying to transform it into something that's positive. You know, putting it putting a a, a hooky beat to it, you know, or a rhythm, you know, and a melody and then like turning it into a song everyone can sing and dance to. Like that's that's taking a, a negative and turning it into a positive. How does a band like the Rolling Stones or you two make it for decades and stay successful? I mean, what does a band have to have that other bands do not in order to have that kind of longevity. Money. <laughs> money. It is yeah, money. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get to a certain like success rate where you have so much money for advertising that you can saturate and people will still buy a bad album that you and still come and see you because of the past hits. You like just reach a tipping point as a band that you can keep going. Because, I mean, like it's not like if you look at Rolling Stone's record sales, like that no. they've had records that have continued to grow in sales or anything like that. Their records have continued to decline in sales. So, But their, their concerts sales tickets have, have continued to expand and become larger, right? Um, but but yeah, I don't know. You know, it's just because they're able to, to survive off of that momentum. How does one make money in the music business now? T-shirt sales. Merch? It really is merch? <laughs> a lot of it, yeah. I mean, like, we're, we're a working class band when it comes down to it. We survive because we still tour as much as we did when we were like 18, 19 years old, you know, like we go out there and we tour eight, nine months a year, especially more so when you have a new record coming out, but you have to go out there and you have to play shows because it's certainly not record sales or syncs or licensing or anything like that. You know, that's like really minimal amount of money that comes from that. More fun now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like getting to a place in life where you don't have the same pressures is great as like a musician, you know, like, um, uh, of, feeling like comfortable with myself and and being able to just be generally happier on tour and in a better mood like makes me get along with like band the band gets along you know it's not there's not drama like that anymore adam oh you know one question i had was uh does the argument that caitlin jenner is a complete fraud is 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 that an argument what's what in what way well, I just hear that argument and I waver on, on how I feel about it because I, I personally can't get over the fact that the first big major celebrity to kind of come out like that is a branch on the Kardashian tree. Because <laughs> like, like, I really hate the Kardashians and I, they're so full of shit. 
It's like, all a game. It's all an act. I know, I it's know. It's all an act. Brett, I know Brett, them. Brett They're thinks all, I it's all an act. It's I know, all, but it's like... a way to make money. Is there any chance that Caitlyn Jenner is, is a fraud, or is it totally legit? I, I think it's know. totally legit. You think it's legit? I think the men are legit on that show. I think the men are totally legit, and they and they are, there's a revolving door of them. They only last so long. They all have major, major drug problems, whether it's Rob, whether it's Scott Disick, mental problems like Kanye, uh, you know, the guy who overdosed in the whorehouse, and they're all the men are messes. It's a matriarchal world and they control everything and you know that's i just thought of that because when you said it was an open secret like i didn't know that an open secret about bruce oh in, in yeah. show business circles and in la circles for decades people have been talking about that goes back to the, the late 80s people were i remember rumors about, about his sexuality no, like no being, it was about it was about it was about that and you know quickly we'll uh, i'm a huge guns fan best song off appetite i always liked rocket queen oh rocket queen's dope but uh I, guns is one of those bands where the singles just really don't Oh, I think. Do really? You don't think so? Sweet Child of Mine? You know, I fucking like, hate Sweet Child of Mine. Well, that's my, that's my favorite song. I right think now. that's their worst song. I mean, it's just not what I like from the. I like It's So Easy. I like The Danger. Sure. And Sweet Child of Mine is like a fucking you're, money you're not a You're not a fan of November Rain? I hate November it's Rain. It's a little indulgent <laughs> on the Rain is so I was All joking. Right? I was joking. <laughs> I think the User Illusion records are great. I think they're amazing songs. It should have been one record. But see, you know? I said that about I said that about Sandinista, the class record. I said to someone, God, that would have made a masterpiece album if it had only been one. And I really don't know if it needs to be three. I well I, I see I think more so it was like you know, London Calling's probably more the perfect length. Um and yeah. that they were just trying to redo London Calling in that way and like went a little bit more with the songs and then like needed to break out of that. But the claim they were going up against the river for Bruce, right? They were it was a it was I, about a year after the river. They were like, Oh Bruce can do a sprawling fucking record, we're gonna do that. But fifteen <laughs> but there are there are fourteen top notch songs in Sandinista and I think a lot of wasted stuff that and I think there is there is basically a, a great long one long record that you can call I mean the first side is totally great the first mm-hmm. side is great and then it kind of goes off and then you have you have like you know police on my back you've got somebody got murdered police Rebel Waltz is a great song yeah and, and if you just kind of had put that on side too and um, I don't know. I think more so they went like a weird place aesthetically, like with yeah. what they were wearing on that record. Where it's like, all right, you wear a gas mask and a poncho, and like, yeah, yeah, like what are you? Weird. What are y'all doing? Well, <laughs> like, their narrative is really sad. I mean, that yeah. narrative. It's, did you see the, there was a documentary recently about it? And I mean, I've the one about it, but... was it the one that went into like cut the crap and then interviewed all the members who were like in the band? Yeah, for that very last record that's never spoken. No, I'm talking about another one. There's Westway to the World, or there's the, like the, the one where they're all sitting around. The one that all no that has all of the archival footage from 79 80 probably New York, West way to the world yeah and it just is like what that is such a ridiculous reason to break up that band in terms of whatever the jealousies he was having with um but that's well, the way it works. And I also, know. you know, like that, that was one of the things like that they said too, where it was like, no one told us we could take a break in between records. If we would have maybe right. like been able to take in a month or two off in between making records and doing tours, right. like we probably would have lasted longer as a band, but you're just like, so the relationship dynamic between four people when you're in a band together becomes like its own little world and ecosystem. You know, it's like yeah. being in a marriage with right. four people, you know? Right. 